Before we talk about your childhood and the events leading up to what you are today, let's define the word transsexual. Because I think a lot of people really don't have a clear idea about what it really is. And tell me, how does it feel to be a transsexual? How do you feel about it today? Well, it's an unusual thing. I think being a transsexual is neat. A transsexual is a male, or it can be a female also, who feels that they are trapped in the body of the opposite sex. Transsexuals are people that are trying very hard to be their sex physically and don't make it because they are born the opposite sex. In my previous case, I was a very difficult thing because I tried very diligently to be a male, and in fact, I was a female. So I would say, in response to your question, being a transsexual is unique and it's beautiful and it's a constant reaction and adjustment to society. That was Canary Khan. For a short time in the 1970s, Canary Khan was everywhere. She was on television, on the radio, and on bookshelves. Her story, that of a Texas-born recording artist, husband, and father, who transitioned into someone that the media described as a beautiful young woman with flowing blonde hair, captured national attention. Growing trans activism in the 1970s made Canary's fame possible. This activism included organizing by networks of middle-class white suburbanites and by black and brown people resisting police harassment and community violence in the streets. But Canary's prior fame also focused national attention on her story. Canary first gained fame before her transition when she performed on ABC's television special Super Teen, The Sounds of 68. Super Teen was a national singing competition for teenagers, co-hosted by singers Ed Ames and Aretha Franklin. Canary performed under her birth name, Danny O'Connor, and was one of nine teenage performers who qualified for the show by winning regional talent competitions. Millions tuned in as she won the competition with her original composition, Imaginary Worlds. The prize for winning Super Teen was a recording contract with Capitol Records and a brand new car, the silver 1968 Super Teen Pontiac Firebird, customized with a television set and a phonograph in the rear seat. The following year, Canary recorded four songs for Capitol Records under her birth name. The label released the singles, Can You Imagine and If I Am Not Free. Canary seemed on track for stardom and success, but shortly after she recorded her first songs, she left her family and career behind, dropping out of public view and sought out what was then called sex reassignment surgery. When we first learned about Canary Khan, we were eager to know more. So we did what we usually do when researching an episode for this podcast. We scoured libraries and archives for source material that might help us to uncover the past. This time, however, our research quickly reached a dead end. We found Canary's 1974 memoir, a smattering of newspaper articles and interviews, and a few of her songs. We encountered her in the footnotes of literature on trans history and trans lives, and she lives on in the memories of trans folks who sometimes cite her as a touchstone figure. But we couldn't find recordings of Canary's many public performances or her radio and television interviews. What's more, the trail of evidence disappears after 1980, when she inexplicably left the public spotlight and returned to private life. We tried to interview Canary Khan, but we were unsuccessful in reaching her. What we did find, and what we are delighted to share with you, is an extended audio interview with Canary, 
that she recorded with the magazine Psychology Today in 1977. Only a handful of libraries had a copy of this recording, and only one was willing to share its cassette with us. The tape you're about to hear offered a fascinating conversation between Canary Khan and Helen Way, who was then Psychology Today's associate editor. They talk about Canary's childhood, her transition, her sexuality, and her gender identity. A great deal has changed since 1977 when Canary recorded this interview. Many terms that Canary uses to describe herself and her life are no longer current. Trans activists and their allies have replaced the term transsexual with the more inclusive umbrella word trans. And what Canary calls sex change surgery is now known as sex or gender confirmation surgery. In what follows, our linguistic choices reflect our desire to show respect for contemporary trans communities, while also remaining true to the concepts and terminology that were available to Canary in the 1970s. I'm Lauren Gutterman. I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History. When we listened to the interview with Canary Khan, we knew that we needed to understand her story as one that emerged out of the culture of the 1960s and the 1970s. During those years, there was an intense public interest in sensational stories about sex change. Often, these stories fetishize trans people's genitals, gender performances, and sexual activities. Both the questions the Psychology Today interviewer asked Canary and the ways in which she responded were powerfully affected by medical and psychiatric frameworks. During the 1970s when Canary came out, many Americans were wrestling with how anatomical sex, gender roles, and sexual desire related to one another. The feminist and gay rights movements of the 1970s, as well as the backlashes against them, raised urgent questions. Were sex, gender, and sexuality biologically predetermined? Were they culturally imprinted during childhood and reinforced in countless ways? Could and should sex, gender, and sexuality be changed? Canary Khan, like many trans people in the public eye in the 70s, was caught up in these broader cultural and political discussions of bodies and identities. Since at least the 1930s, magazines and newspapers featured stories about people changing their physical sex through surgery. Many of these stories presented their subjects as perverted and freakish outsiders. However, as historian Joanne Meyerwitz has argued, this same media coverage also inspired the hopes of Americans who longed to change their bodies. The media, in other words, created awareness and identification among some readers by crystallizing the idea that physical sex could be changed through medical intervention. What's more, the media provided an imperfect space for trans people to speak for themselves about their desires for transformation. Media coverage also made some trans people famous by giving them a platform to talk about their lives. As historian Emily Skidmore has shown, the popular press focused on white, conventionally attractive trans women who fulfilled middle-class standards of dress and comportment. Canary, with her pale skin, blue eyes, delicate features, and flowing blonde locks, fulfilled this cultural ideal of trans femininity. In this way, Canary followed the path created by renowned trans celebrity Christine Jorgensen, who transitioned in the early 1950s to international acclaim. Jorgensen's famous story, that of an ex-GI going to Denmark for surgery and returning home as a quote-unquote blonde bombshell, familiarized Americans with the idea that sex could be changed. The media's coverage of trans lives, even when the stories were salacious, 
also mattered to trans people for another reason. It offered visible role models and moral affirmation to individual trans people who often felt isolated because of their desires. In the 1950s and 1960s, medical researchers at several universities began to study trans people. Although doctors affiliated with these medical clinics did not yet offer sex change surgeries, they began to make judgments about who counted as truly trans and who did not. In the late 1960s, in response to trans people's demands, doctors at medical schools and in specialized centers in the United States became increasingly willing to perform sex change surgeries. They developed the standards of care that required patients to undergo extensive psychological evaluations and to fit specific criteria to qualify for treatment. Because of this medical gatekeeping, only a small fraction of those who sought sex change surgery were able to secure it in U.S. clinics. Canary was among those who was unable to secure surgery in the United States. In her 1974 memoir, she recounts her experience of applying for surgical treatment in the U.S. and being interviewed by a board of medical experts. These experts asked her about her gender identity and her sexual experiences. Canary recalled feeling disrespected and degraded by these doctors. Their disinterest in fulfilling her request for surgery convinced her to seek medical treatment outside of the United States. Like many other trans people who were denied surgery by American doctors, Canary turned to medical practitioners in Mexico. Canary's Psychology Today interview spotlights how trans people calibrated their personal arguments for sex change in response to the shifting medical criteria of doctors and psychiatrists. But trans people were not simply the victims of an oppressive medical gaze. They also helped shape medical opinion. What's more, economically and racially privileged trans people like Canary were often in the best position to affect change. Doctors were divided on the causes of transsexuality and debated whether the condition was psychological, physiological, or a mixture of both. This medical ambivalence shaped how trans folks told their stories. In Canary's interview, she suggested that she deserved surgery because she identified internally as a woman and also because she possessed female biological traits. Canary also reinforced the medical definition of transsexuality when she defined herself as a true transsexual. Notably, Canary asserted her worthiness for sex change by comparing herself with others whom she perceived as less authentically trans and therefore undeserving of medical treatment. The personal narrative Canary provides in this interview echoes other trans women's coming out stories of this period. She emphasizes a troubled relationship with her assigned gender identity, a longing for transition and medical intervention, and a happy outcome. In this period, doctors measure the success of an individual's transition based on their ability to conform to conventional gender norms and aesthetic standards. Doctors were also very concerned that their patients embrace a happy heterosexual lifestyle. In other words, in the eyes of medical practitioners, the trans version of happily ever after included both successfully transitioning gender and also successfully forging heterosexual relationships. At this time and in these contexts, the messier realities of trans people's lives, including queer desires or genderqueer identities, needed to be smoothed out for them to be accepted by physicians and a wider public. Canary joined many other trans folks who strategically downplayed the parts of their lives that would disqualify them from getting surgery, acceptance, and support. Because so many of Canary's television and radio interviews have been lost, we don't have a full picture of what Canary chose to disclose about her life to different audiences. But the evidence we do have 
suggests a careful narrative strategy in response to the questions posed by Psychology Today's interviewer. In Canary's interview with Helen Way, she did not discuss some aspects of her life that she revealed in her 1974 memoir. She didn't mention her lesbian experiences. She didn't mention that she funded her surgery by working at a sex toy manufacturing facility or through her own sex work. These details would have convinced certain audiences that Canary was not deserving of respect or support. Instead, she emphasized the heartbreaks of being different, her hopes for parental acceptance, and her desire for heterosexual romance. Canary likely understood that this kind of story would play well with a general audience. But even with these careful omissions, Canary found ways to highlight trans oppression and to offer a political analysis of trans lives. In this interview with Psychology Today, she made clear that her, and by implication other trans folks' survival and well-being, hinged upon access to sex reassignment surgery. She recounted the self-hatred and discrimination that nearly drove her to end her life. Canary underlined the devastating implications of being shamed by doctors in the United States and being denied access to medical treatment. And she pulled no punches in sharing the details of her brutal and costly surgery in Mexico that nearly killed her. Canary also challenged anti-trans attitudes. She called trans identity unique, beautiful, and neat. Elsewhere, Canary even challenged the prevailing medical idea that sex change surgery was a cure-all. She stated publicly, I'm happier than I was before, but I won't be really happy till social pressures stop, until people start to realize transsexuals are human beings. Canary became famous in large part because she was young, white, conventionally attractive, and incredibly talented. Yet even with all of these benefits, Canary's life in the 1970s was precarious. Though much has changed about trans lives and politics since the 1970s, Canary's interview highlights issues that remain relevant today. Trans people's need for respectful, affordable, and comprehensive healthcare. Their friction with healthcare providers who often act as gatekeepers by standing between them and the medical treatment they want, and their ongoing struggles for visibility, recognition, and basic human rights. More, Canary's testimony in this interview about the physical violence and terror she experienced speaks to the ongoing epidemic of violence against trans people, particularly trans women of color, who are being killed at astonishing rates around the world. But while Canary's transition attracted a tremendous degree of largely positive public attention, the stories of those trans women who lack her privileges and her ability to pass more often go untold. In the end, interviews are acts of co-creation between the interviewer, the interviewee, and the cultural contexts that give meaning to the questions, answers, and identities at play. We hope that in making this small moment in trans history visible and accessible, we can contribute to marking the importance of trans voices to the history of sexuality and to deepening our understanding of gender and sexual diversity in the past and present. Without further ado, here's Psychology Today's 1977 interview with Canary Khan. This is a Psychology Today cassette, one of a series of interviews and special presentations featuring contemporary clinicians and researchers discussing their work in the behavioral and social sciences. Today, Ms. Canary Khan, a young woman who has contributed to the study of the transsexual phenomena, 
courageously shares her story in an effort to focus attention on the large number of suffering individuals who question their gender identity, often for a lifetime. We join Canary now in her Los Angeles studio as you sit in on her conversation with associate editor Helen Way. Canary, you're a very lovely young woman. You're a talented musician, a successful writer, and you're beginning to harvest some of the fruits of your labor. But life hasn't always been so good to you, and judging from your book, it must have been very painful to write it and to re-experience some of the things that you probably like to forget. Well, I think it probably was one of the most healthy things I've done in years. To write a book about an experience like I've gone through, an experience of undergoing a transsexual change, of living both as a male and a female, and of analyzing both roles, was tremendously helpful to me. I think I really gained a lot of insight that I would have never had if I hadn't have written. When I was writing the book, I learned a lot about me that I had somehow or another suppressed. Mm -hmm. I brought back experiences that I really didn't want to relive at all. But I realized afterwards that it's very important to face the past as well as the future. I think it's been very helpful to me. Mm -hmm. Dealing with it. Uh-huh. I think it's very important. Yeah. Before we talk about your childhood and the events leading up to what you are today, let's define the word transsexual. Because I think a lot of people really don't have a clear idea about what it really is. And tell me, how does it feel to be a transsexual? How do you feel about it today? Well, it's an unusual thing. I think being a transsexual is neat. A transsexual is a male, or it can be a female also, who feels that they are trapped in the body of the opposite sex. Transsexuals are people that are trying very hard to be their sex physically and don't make it because they are born the opposite sex. In my previous case, I was a very difficult thing because I tried very diligently to be a male and in fact, I was a female. So I would say, in response to your question, being a transsexual is unique and it's beautiful and it's a constant reaction and adjustment to society. Now, you used to be Danny O'Connor, but now you're Canary Khan. So you've actually had the surgery. Now, what does that entail? Well, as Danny, I was physically considered a male in terms of my genitalia. I had surgery which converted that genitalia into a vagina. Basically, what it consisted of was two stages. The first stage was the amputation of the testes and the utilization of that tissue to form the outer lips of the vagina. Now, after the first stage, my penis was still intact. Now, the second stage was the amputation of the penis, uh, dissection of same, and inversion and utilization of that tissue to form the inside or the lining of the vagina. Let's jump ahead a little bit. After you had the surgery, how did you relate to society, and how did society relate to you? Well, that's a good question. I think probably I have a lot more on the ball than society does in terms of dealing with the situation. I've realized, first of all, what I am to society. I think that was one of the biggest problems I had. Probably one of the biggest problems all transsexuals have is dealing with the reality that to society, they are in fact transsexuals first and a male or a female second. To me, I've always been a female. That's the first thing. And it was a very difficult thing to come to grasp with the reality that my friends and my relatives all think of me as a transsexual first. Obviously, there are many varied opinions. And society's opinion of a transsexual 
by and large now. I would have to say is marked questioning. They don't know exactly what a transsexual is. And of course, tapes like this help and programs help. As a matter of fact, I've written a book about my life that seems to have helped also. People are very responsive to the truth. What about your family and friends? How do they respond? Well, it's been difficult for my family. I think my father's probably had the, the most difficult time with dealing with my my being a transsexual. On the part of my two sisters and my mother, individually, I think they relate to me. Collectively, I think when they're all together, they talk about me a lot. Not all necessarily positive things. My mother, I'm sure, has really come to a point where she has adjusted to my being a transsexual. My older sister refused to talk to me for the last seven years, and she has not met me yet. Although she proclaims to accept me, she refuses to meet me. Mm -hmm. This is a very difficult thing for them to adjust to. So on the part of my family, I think it's an ongoing adjustment. After undergoing the change, I was, in fact, held responsible for the death of Danny, the person I used to be, and, in fact, lived to face the consequences as a murderess. And I think my relatives and many of my former friends hold me responsible for his death because he was a pretty well-liked person. As a matter of fact, he's the same person I am now inside. He's the same person. There's no difference. And so I think possibly over the years, although there has been you know, a, a, some change in terms of their feelings, it's a difficult adjustment. It really is. Oh, undoubtedly. Well, Canary, there is some prejudice you've had to deal with as a transsexual. And there is some amount of prejudice against women in certain areas. Now, how do you deal with both? It's not very easy. What I've had to do is I've had to accept the fact that I'm not going to change the world overnight. In working in several jobs, as I have over the last few years, over seven, in fact, as a female, I've learned that a male is treated a great deal different than a female is. And even being a young male and working in various places, I really realize a very stark difference in the treatment and, and salary level, etc. And I find that also... In being a transsexual, there's a lot of discrimination in hiring people. Most people don't want a transsexual around, whether you're a teacher or whatever you've done before, because it's a very different phenomenon. There aren't that many transsexuals around. And how does someone describe to one of their clients or one of their customers that, well, Joe is now Betty, and you'll have to treat him as her? Well, most people don't want to do it. So... This brings about a real interesting dilemma on the part of the transsexual trying to adjust also because most transsexuals go out into society and I think probably in, in the initial stages want to keep it quiet, don't want to talk about it. Psychologically, they feel that they have to keep it quiet in order to make their new life, to make themselves totally female. What happens is society puts so many pressures on the average person in terms of red tape anyway. Well, in a transsexual's case, there are things like birth certificates, inability to marry if you fall in love. And a lot of states don't permit birth certificate changes. Then you have a tremendous problem in trying to bring about a successful marriage contractually. Obviously, there are also peer pressure problems on the part of the spouse-to-be also. In my particular case, dealing with love affairs, of which I've had many, that have all fallen apart, unfortunately. It wasn't so much a tremendous difficulty on the part of the person I was in love with to adjust to me, but more a difficulty on his part to adjust to his peer pressure, to his environmental pressure, his mother saying, for example, in one case, one person I was going with was a policeman. 
And his mother was very proud of him, and justifiably. He had won the Silver Star in Vietnam and was quite a person. I loved him very deeply. And she found out about me one night. He told her. And the pressure then began. As a result of that pressure, the relationship was dissolved within a few weeks afterwards. And probably single-handedly, she destroyed all the best chances at the time that I had for happiness. And it was difficult for me to adjust to it at the time. And I think it, uh, it's, it's not an uncommon thing either. I, I feel a lot of transsexuals have the same kind of problem because you can fall in love with one person and one person can understand you, but people don't realize the environmental pressure that anyone is subject to. I can believe that. Have you ever dated and not revealed the fact that you were a transsexual? Many times. And Many how, times. what's happened? What has been the result of those relationships? A casual date is just that. You know, I think you can be real to a point. You don't get totally involved. You go out to dinner, whatever. Your emotions are pretty much your own and you're not giving them away. So there's no need to tell. However, in a love relationship, you cannot predicate love on a lie. And the fact that I was a male 20 years of my life and now I'm a female and actually very proud of it. I feel obligated to whatever love partner I have now to tell him. Of course, then it brings about problems. So the idea is if I don't tell him, then eventually they'll find out and it'll be destroyed anyway. It just doesn't work. No, no. no. Well, usually what is the reaction? on the part of the, the boyfriend? Yeah. In my particular case, it's really been pretty good. Mm -hmm. Really, not bad at all. I think a lot of the guys I've gone with have really kind of dug me for it and respected me for it. Mm -hmm. It took courage. Yeah, one of the, but it's, I think probably the most important thing is that uh, the relatives can't handle it. The uh, people at the job can't handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, friends, what are you doing with that? Why are you going with a trans? What is it again? You know, it's an it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of beautiful women around, but don't mm -hmm. don't bother with that. That's only problems. Yeah. But, you know, transsexuals are human, too, and people have to realize that. Of course. You know, I feel uncomfortable asking you this next question. I don't like to ask it, but, you know, everybody wants to know. After you've had this anatomical change, what what is your sex life like? Well, it's limited, and I, I, I understand how you you can feel a little unusual. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's an unusual thing, but after all, being a transsexual is being uh, changed sexually, and people are obviously interested in the functionability of a transsexual change. Once again, it's, it's limited. I, I don't have that many sexual relationships. I think in terms of my vaginal function, my operation is working fine. I mean, I don't have any problems. I don't anticipate any problems because I take care of myself. I'm not a loose person. I don't go out and, and have many, many relationships. And I try and deal realistically with the ones I do have. It's also a bit of a problem for me to adjust to the fact that it's a man-made vagina and I can't have children. And, I mean, if I think realistically about my situation, I could get depressed. Mm -hmm. But I, and I do somewhat. But I also choose to just, well, right, so it's a man-made vagina, but it's something that's part of me now, and at least I'm normal cosmetically mm -hmm. in that area. And I feel very normal emotionally. I think that's, in my particular case, I, I can't say for everyone, you know, and if you're asking just Canary about her relationships, probably 90% of all my relationships are emotional. And the sexual part, 
from what I've been able to ascertain from those I've experienced sex with is, is quite normal, you know. And, and even in terms of orgasm, speaking very objectively and, and clinically, my orgasm is, from what I've been able to, once again, ascertain from those who have one, from, from the females I've spoken to, very similar. Mm -hmm. But once again, that's relative. That's sure. an abstract, and it's very difficult to, um, you know, how do you describe an orgasm, or how do you describe love and hate and all the rest yes. of it? Yes. You know? Well, you've experienced as a male, mm -hmm. and can you make a comparison? Is it possible? I'm oh, wondering. yes, yes. There is a similarity. My orgasm as a male was very painful. Physically painful? Physically painful. I know I did father a child. And that's a fact. That's a fact that will remain for the rest of my life. I did father a child, so it was functioning. That was something that I, I didn't quite understand, but just the same, it happened. And as I look, in retrospect, as I look at my past and in my sexual experience, it was very limited. I only had sex with one person as a male, and that was the girl that I married. And that was on a limited basis. So... My sex life, if we can coin the old overused phrase now on the commercials, how is your sex life? <laughs> I would say it's, uh, it's all right. You know? uh -huh. It's not the best. It's not the worst. Probably that means I'm normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, do you ever think about marriage? Many times. But I've decided now not to get married. Why? Because I want to be a career person. Mm -hmm. you think and that I don't conflict? feel being a woman and being involved in as many things as I'm involved in is very conducive to a successful marriage relationship. And I have tried various live-in relationships, and I don't, I don't really want that kind of problem. Mm -hmm. I really don't, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, I, I'm very happy with being alone and dating. I like dating, I like living alone. Let's talk a little more about the surgery, the experience you had in the Tijuana Hospital, and how did you finally find a doctor who would perform the surgery? Enough money accumulated for half a surgery in the two-stage surgery. So I went down to this doctor, and I went through a surgery there in Tijuana. And he was uh, quite a, a skilled physician in actuality. He really was. Was he a Mexican doctor? Yes, a Mexican doctor, mm -hmm. educated in Heidelberg, Germany. And a very, a very good doctor in terms of his um, technical ability. But the hospital care there was atrocious, and the people there were very hostile toward me. And the first surgery was bad enough. There were a lot of incidents that occurred, that not changing the um, catheter bag. And you mean they simply refused to do it? Just refused to change my sheets and everything, and I got infected. They refused to, and they wouldn't let me call out. And, and the doctor couldn't do anything to... Well, he didn't want it. He didn't understand English that well, I don't think. And when I told him, and I, he, didn't, he just said, well, you know, Americans are always complaining about Mexican hospitals. Oh. So the second time I went down, I didn't want to go down, back down there, because I felt I'd almost died the first time. And I remember lying in bed crying the first time, fearing what I'd had to go through again, the second surgery. Now, after the first surgery, my penis was still intact. So I had no more money for the second surgery. I had to go out and get money in some way or another. Well, I went out into the community to get jobs. I got three jobs. I did earn the money, and I tried to get the surgery back in the United States. I didn't want to have to go back down to Tijuana because I was frightened for my life. I can imagine. After going to several institutions, universities, and getting horrible treatment, uh, humiliation, and all they wanted to do was study me. They didn't want to help me. They promised me the operation. I was given several dates by several different doctors, only so they could study me. And then, you know, of course, you know, somehow or another, the date just passed by, and, well, we'll have to do it some other time, and that kind of thing. So I had to go back down to Tijuana. The second trip, I almost died. 
The second trip, I um, almost bled to death in the hospital. This was the second phase of the surgery? Second huh? surgery, and this was, as I described, the amputation of the penis and inversion of the, that tissue to form the inside of the vagina. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a mold in me for nine days, and I couldn't get out. I had a catheter in me, couldn't get out of bed. The nursing staff were even more hostile than the first trip down there. They wouldn't let me call out. They wouldn't come when I was bleeding. And I remember one night, lying in bed, watching the blood roll down the sheets onto the floor. Something had ruptured inside me, and there was no one I could contact. I was buzzing the nurse's buzzer. I was trying to call. They wouldn't answer my calls. I couldn't call anyone. I couldn't get out because there was a mold inside me. I was too weak to pull myself out of bed. And I knew it was the end somehow. I knew that it was all over with. So I said a prayer, and I laid back, and I grabbed for some scissors because I wanted to take my own life. I didn't want them to take it, you know. And there I was in Tijuana. I, in fact, I had killed myself by following through with what I really felt, I really believed, and there I was bleeding to death. I fainted, luckily, before I could take my own life. And the doctor came in around 2 o'clock in the morning. He came in from a party quite by accident. I had been complaining for several days. And he came in from a party and discovered the situation. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't be alive today. Yeah. He just happened to come at the right time. You know, I had complained enough that made him a little suspicious, and he came in. So what did he do? Well, he immediately got me out of there. And I came home. I had to make a couple extra trips down to Tijuana. Of course, you, I live in Los Angeles. You, know. you came home to Los Angeles? Huh? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So that's, of course, one of the, the difficult times that I had, and I really didn't have to have. I think it's important also that people realize that education is the strongest tool that any minority has. That's absolutely true. bringing about acceptance. You bet. What is the cost of this kind of surgery? Well, it runs about from five to $10,000, as high as $15,000. Hmm. In the male-to-female cases, it can run even higher because of the complications in the surgery. Of course, then you're talking about the creation of a penis from skin grafts taken from usually the inside of the legs, from the thighs, and it's not as successful. So therefore, you have a lot more problems. Some people have a lot of problems with urethral strictures. Some have problems with urinary tract infections. Well, when you returned to Los Angeles, did you have any problems? Many. Did yeah. you really? Well, I had a lot of infections. No urethral strictures, but a lot of infections because of a dirty catheter. Oh, my heaven. Did you have to go back down to T1 and see the doctor down no, there? No, no. As a matter of fact, I was so frightened as a result of the experience that I've had that I haven't seen a doctor for four and a half years. Now, you wrote a very poignant letter to your parents when you made this decision to follow through on the treatment. You want to talk about that? Tell me what, what their reaction was and... How did you happen to write it? And well, it's a very difficult thing to write a letter to parents who really didn't know that it was all happening. And it was when I was in California, and I had already made the decision to go on my own way, and my wife agreed to it. And I had to sit down at the typewriter and somehow put in a couple of pages this story to my parents and my relatives. Obviously, it was very difficult. It was a very stress-filled time for me. I told them then, as simply as I could, about me. And even then, even with my... I was crying when I was writing the letter. Even then, they couldn't understand. And it wasn't for months afterward until my mother finally came to an understanding of who I was and stuff. My father, to this day, I don't think really, truly understands me. 
and most of our relatives don't either. But they've accepted it? I would say no. Not? No. Not? Not accepted no. it, huh? I feel it's a lot easier for people to accept a success than someone who's kind of down and out. And for many years, I was down and out because I was pursuing my career and my life and doing it in a very difficult way because I was doing it all alone with no friends. And I think that, uh, oh, I think recently I've had a lot of mail from relatives and, and friends and stuff. And it's a lot easier for them to accept me now because, you know, this 90-minute Merv Griffin special and various things. Mm-hmm television and newspaper interviews and suddenly people are saying oh yes well you know I knew her and oh she's my relative mm -hmm. but when I was really down and out and although I don't hold hostility toward them I just can't seem to forget all that of course not. that when I was down and out and I was in the hospital bed in Tijuana twice and two separate occasions no one came to visit me and you know these were weeks on end that I suffered alone and when I needed the money for years several years in the in-between stage when I'd only had the first stage of the surgery I didn't have the money to complete the surgery one uncle and one aunt in particular who were millionaires and who could have at any time given me the money to help me out of the situation and refused to and they knew about this trouble you were having yes as a matter of fact I had an aunt interesting story that I lived not more than half a mile from during the entire course of my struggle and she was worth seven million dollars and refused to help me and I was her only living relative within 2,000 miles. Probably because she felt very strongly about what you were doing, huh? Well, but, but after the first stage of the surgery, she refused even to talk to me. I mean, she slammed the door on my face, as a matter of fact. You know, I was totally alone. She slammed the door on my face. I guess it's pretty hard for most people to understand, isn't it? I think so. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about your life as a child. How old were you when you realized that you felt different and maybe were different from other little guys? Well, when I was two years old, I used to dress quite frequently in my big sister's clothes, and she was just a year older than I was, so she was pretty much the same size. And, of course, this persisted all through my childhood and adolescence. So I can really remember being different from the very beginning. I didn't know I was a transsexual. I didn't even know the word existed until I was 18. Mm -hmm. I, you know, as a child, how can you know anything? All I knew was that I was different. And when I was around children that were my own age, I felt uh, somehow estranged, you know. I didn't yeah. feel that, that I belonged there. Well, how did you relate to other boys and kids your own age? Well, I really didn't relate to either one because I felt, as I mentioned, alienated. So I turned inward, and I spent a lot of my life, a lot of my childhood, alone. And I, I sought that empty room in my grandparents' house or the backyard where there were no children playing. You know, wherever there, there weren't people, that's why I, I seemed to like the best. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that helped, too. I, as I look in retrospect, I feel that all the pain that I've gone through really made me a better person. Yeah, you mentioned your grandmother's house. I remember one story you told me about your Christmas dress. That really moved me. Do you feel like telling it? There's a story about uh, Christmas when I was six years old. I was given a dress by accident in a package. The dress was for my sister. And I wanted a dress at that time. I wanted a dress really bad. And I dashed early in the morning under the Christmas tree and opened this package. And somehow or another they had gotten the label switched. And I pulled out a dress. And I was so excited because, you know, that was what I wanted. 
Yeah. And I put it on. Of course, that the problem was my grandparents, you know, woke up and and caught me in it, and it was a very big problem. <laughs> so I, of course, took it off. And that's like you know, a young boy. It was not exactly acceptable. And needless to say, I wasn't exactly the most popular child in the house. But um, I'll never forget that story. It was a very mm-hmm. beautiful story to me. You know. Yeah. I remember you mentioned the fact that that was about the time you had some doubts about Santa Claus, too, because you had your hopes built so high, and you thought, gee, I finally got the dress, yeah. and then it wasn't for you after all. And as a child, see, being a very lonely child, too, as a child, I I dealt with things in a, in a rather unusual manner, too, because since I was so isolated, I dealt with them in a sort of pseudo-reality, because I tried to imagine things as I wanted them rather than that they were, you know. Yeah. And it took me years to get over it. Like, I felt then that the whole world was against me, you know. Mm-hmm. Now I realize it's not that way at all. You know, it's me against the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, unfortunately, that's the way it is. Right. Yeah. And uh, when I was a child and I was alone and people used to pick on me a lot, I felt, and it carried over to my adolescence, that there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Now, I've learned over the years that the something that was wrong with me wasn't anything I could have helped. I mean, there was something wrong with me, but it wasn't something inferiorly wrong with me. No. That was what I felt when I was a child. I felt, oh, God, you know, I'm not as good as them. Yeah. You know? But now I realize that it was a problem that, you know, needed to be corrected, and, I, and it was corrected. I had the surgery. Mm-hmm. Did any physician ever suggest the possibility of um, ambiguity in the sexual development when you were born as an infant? Did that ever present itself at all? Well, what happened is my doctor told me, the doctor that performed the surgery, that I did have, in fact, partially developed ovaries. Oh. So I was in a pseudo-hermaphroditic condition, mm. and he removed them. He felt they'd be a, you know, problematical in the future. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they would have never grown. They were just, you know, very small. But I also had a very poignant and prominent hormonal imbalance as a male. I didn't have, as a matter of fact, I never even had beard growth until I started on female hormones, and it causes sort of a real quick reaction on my body. But even then, I had very, very little beard growth. Mm-hmm. And I had no voice change to, you know, at all. The other way, it was lower, but it wasn't, as, you know, it yeah. wasn't the same thing. Yeah, that had occurred to me that there was a hormonal imbalance of some kind, and I wondered if they had checked it out and if if they could have corrected it, do you suppose? Well, you know, that question has been brought up a lot. Mm-hmm. But the correction was in the right way, obviously. Obviously. You know, the yeah. correction was you were very successful. I was a female. Right. And because I was a female, I've been able to live a successful life as a female. Yes. One of the things that interests me particularly is in those early years when you were going through all this conflict, did you have anyone at all you could confide in? Could is there anyone who understood, someone you could talk to? Did you tell your did you tell your mom about it? Well I didn't tell my mom during my childhood. When I turned thirteen I told her. When you first told your mom about this, what was her reaction? She was frightened. I think she was very much frightened at the fact that her boy was not exactly a boy in her eyes. At that time, I felt I was queer. That was the word I knew. That was the only word I knew at all. 
And I didn't know anything else about myself except for the fact that then I knew that I wanted to be a woman. I had heard of an operation. And if you can imagine a 13-year-old boy going to his mother and saying, you know, Mom, I would like to have an operation to become a woman. Well, obviously, she was very frightened and upset. And she went on to threaten to commit me to an institution. And, of course, I didn't want that. I didn't know that much about him either, but I didn't certainly yeah. didn't want to go away in prison somewhere. That's what I thought it was. She was just probably just so terrified of the whole thing. It was just unknown to her. Of course, and I was dressing a whole lot then. I was dressing a tremendous amount of the time. And I felt a real need to try and, you know, get some sort of recognition and possibly even an understanding that I hadn't gotten from anyone else, from my mother. I didn't succeed, however, because she uh, she really wasn't willing or possibly even able to comprehend the intensity of my feelings at that time. Probably just not able. I'm sure mm -hmm. she wanted to. She was probably trying, but she just couldn't cope with it. What about your dad? Did you tell him? I never told my dad in my childhood, never. I made my mom swear to secrecy never to tell him, probably because I realized that, I, I realized his response. I knew the way he would act, and I was right, because years later, when I was 19 and I decided to go through the change, I told him, and he cut me off entirely, he totally. Did. Oh, did. yes, they, neither one of my parents wanted to talk to me. As a matter of fact, when I made the decision, it was very difficult because after I said to everyone that I was going to become a female, no one wanted to be with me. So I was completely cut off from all contact in the whole world. What kind of a relationship did you have with your dad when you were growing up? Were you buddies and only did you go fishing together? My dad was a CPA when I was young, so he was working all the time. and I didn't have much time to really be with him mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, that father-son kind of relationship, except for on the weekends sometimes. He would take me camping and would insist on me being one of the little guys and trailing along, and at the time we were living in Idaho, trailing along behind him, getting frozen from the cold weather, you know, 20 below zero, they were hunting pheasants, <laughs> and I didn't want to. I used to cry. I wanted to sit in the truck where it was warm, where there was a heater. Well, they didn't like that. And needless to say, when I say they, all my dad's friends, and of course, you know, as a result, he didn't like it either. You know, my son's a sissy and all that stuff. How old were you then? Oh, I guess it was, he started doing this when I was around six years old, mm -hmm. from six to ten. Then, uh, as I grew older, he got out of the CPA business and got involved with the car business, wholesaling cars, so I used to go with him on Saturdays, you know, kind of working with him and just seeing how things were. And I learned to drive at a very young age, and he liked that, so I would drive his cars around with him. So we had sort of a camaraderie there. And, of course, he would always try and make me out to be a tough kid to all his friends. You know, this is my son, Danny. That was my name then, Danny. Mm -hmm. This is my son, Danny, and he's a tough kid. He can handle himself and this and that. Well, in reality, I was frightened when I would go with him because the guys, the kids of the people that were there around in the, his business usually were, were also pretty tough kids, mm -hmm. and they could see through my facade pretty easily. So I would get in a lot of fights or problems. And, but I always tried to cover up my dad's image. I mean, I tried to, to maintain it for him. I never wanted him to find out about me. 
although I used to fantasize and really dream of the time when my father could see me in a dress, see me as a woman. As a child, I used to imagine coming to see my father in a dress and him accepting me in mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. Well, to this day, it still hasn't come about. Well, at this time when you were growing up, were you involved in things like scouts and little league baseball and things I like this? I was a tenderfoot scout, I want you to know. Ah. Tenderfoot scout, and I got to be second class scout before, and I was a bugler oh. before our troop was disbanded because the scoutmaster was caught stealing all the money. Oh, God. <laughs> I was terribly disillusioned of scouts right after that. I didn't know exactly which way to go. So I turned in my bugle and decided that I was going to be a good student in school. Well, that didn't work either because I was 12 then. Then I started getting into all my fights. A lot of kids would push me around, and I just only took so much, and then I started fighting back. So I got the reputation as a fighter, as a troublemaker in school. Well, I became a lover, not necessarily in a technical sense, but in the outward physical sense, maybe, you know, the image sense, because all the girls seemed to be attracted to me in junior high school. As a matter of fact, there was an occasion when I left, well, I decided that I was going to go out for football, and I went out in junior high school and didn't make it. I went out again and didn't make it, and finally, in the first year of high school, I made it as four-string guard, and I really struggled to, to make the team. I caught a lot of hell from the coaches because they saw that, you know, what what you know, what is this person going out for football for because I wasn't exactly athletically inclined. So what I did was I tried to deal with that as best I could by coming home with my dad and saying, oh, I'm doing this, Dad, I'm doing that, I'm great, I'm, they're giving me first string and they're giving me all the, the until the first scrimmage. The first scrimmage, my dad saw that his son wasn't getting out to play. <laughs> he was sitting on the bench. In fact, I was in charge of the ice. I gave the other guys ice. That was my job. So it was humiliating. What and was his reaction to that? Did he say anything about it? Did he ever talk to you about it? Well, he was upset about it. And, you know, he, he once again, the truth of the situation was driven home. Of course, I started dating rather heavily, once again, to try and prove that I was a guy, you know, and also that I, I related to women, but I related to them in a most peculiar sense for a male, and that is as another female. And they liked that. Women kind of liked that. I was an unusual guy. I was good looking, but I had a certain something that sensitivity. Maybe, yeah, huh? no other men had mm -hmm. that they knew. So once again, I became very popular, and women were calling me all the time, and, and I uh, dated frequently, but I never had a sexual experience. That is not until I was in my senior year of high school. At that time, I met a girl who seemed to be rather unique, seemed to be the kind of person that would really totally understand me. Was it Joanna? Joanna, that was her name. And we went on to fall in love, as young people do, and I had my first sexual experience. I probably, looking in retrospect, would have never have had it if I had not met her, but she encouraged me to try. Well, it was repulsive to me. At first, it was shocking, and I kind of liked it, but it ended up happening very soon after the first experience, is that I would close my eyes and imagine secretly that I was, in fact, in the love act and the sex act with a man, and that I was her instead of me. Mm -hmm. Well, this went on for a while, and then I finally told her, 
about my secret. She was the second person in my life that I told. Your mom first and then Joanna. My, then I was 18 when I told her. Yeah. Well, it just so happened that prior to my telling her, she had encouraged me to enter a songwriter's and a singer's contest. And you were quite a guitarist at that time, too, weren't you? Mm -hmm. And a budding singer. Right. So I submitted a little application from a teen magazine. Out of 10,000 kids, I won the right to compete for the title of the best teenage male vocalist in America. So in the midst of all my problems, I finally told her about my situation. I flew off to Hollywood as part of this competition prize to appear on ABC Network, an hour special in which I sang a song I wrote and won the title of the best teenage male vocalist. And of course, if you can imagine, then I had decided for the most part, I mean, obviously I told her to go ahead with the change. I wanted to find out where the sex change was going on and I wanted to get it. And I won a lot of uh, prizes in the show, one of which was a contract with Capitol Records. Well, I came back home, and there she was waiting for me with some news I was quite surprised to find out, and that was that she was pregnant. Mm, wow. So therefore, after making the decision to go through the sex change, suddenly I was confronted with a most unexpected surprise, and that was that I was to be a father. I felt immeasurable guilt as anyone could imagine. Mm -hmm. I was a young person and only 18 years old. I just won a contest, was an up-and-coming star suddenly. Sure. And the press around the country was all, you know, excited and they were carrying articles on me. This network special you know, provided a lot of open doors for me. And even in the midst of that, I wanted to go through the change. Even with everything going for me, I wanted to go through the change. Well, I decided to stick it out with her because I felt so guilt-ridden. What happened as a result of that was that the baby was born, and a very healthy little boy. I was sitting in a hospital waiting room, the father's waiting room, looking around and wondering what I was doing there. Here I was a woman who was a father. Yeah. And here I am a woman talking to you, and I'm still a father, and that will be something that I will be forever. And it's a very confusing situation. What happened? was that I went on to go on to college. I got out of the draft because of my situation, thank God. You told them the story. I told them they... the story, and so what I had to do was I had to deal with a Texas environment in the best way that I could, and that was to get the hell out mm -hmm. in a hurry. Yeah. So once I had gone through that, I went to California and uh, decided that I was going to try and get the change, even in the midst of all the problems I was having. And, and did course, you and Joanna separate at that time? Well, I also had a record out just about the same time. It was a very hectic year with Capitol Records, so I was touring the country, promoting my record, and Joanna was in Indiana with her mother, and we decided that she would come out to California with the baby. What happened was that there were a lot of problems in California because I had come out here and realized that I did not want to be a male singer. And I had the guilt of having a baby and a wife. And I was 18 years old. And I made the decision. I told her, Joanna, there was no way I was going to have to go through the change. And she was going to have to make her own life. And because of our mutual depression, I was eventually driven to step off a curb at Sunset Strip in front of ongoing traffic in a suicide attempt. Luckily, I wasn't killed. I wasn't even injured at all, mm -hmm. and the car just stopped in time. 
You actually were thinking about suicide. Oh, yeah, I wanted to end it. I felt I the best. As a matter of fact, there's a preacher, uh, a pastor of a church that I was going to at the time, that told me, under the circumstances, I was very selfish to want to go through this change. Under the circumstances, he felt it would be better if I killed myself. Yes, yes, he felt that God would not hold it against me. And I went to him for help, you know, and there was no way. So, at the time, when I lived, I was shocked back into the reality of the situation, shocked back into the truth once again of who I was and my responsibility to me to live on. So what happened was I encouraged Joanna and the baby to go on and live their life, which she was very happy to do. She's now remarried, and my little boy has a, a little brother, and he knows nothing about me, which is what I wanted. His best. Have you seen him at no, all since I haven't seen him for mm. seven years. Mm. It's difficult. It's very difficult to deal with something like that. It's very difficult to understand it, even on my part after all these years, mm -hmm. how I could suddenly be devoid of the feelings that I once held for the baby and for my wife, but I am. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I've found this kind of understanding is through accepting the fact that I'm a new person. That's mm -hmm. probably everything. Brand new identity. Yeah, I am another person. Well, then when you came to Los Angeles and you had determined that you wanted to go ahead with this treatment and surgery, how did you go about finding the surgeon or the physician who would help you? Well, there was one doctor I heard through. There were some gay kids in a brand-new church at the time called the Metropolitan Community Church, which is now a worldwide homosexual church. And there were some gay kids that were down the street that I was talking to. And I even went to the church a couple times, hoping that maybe I was homosexual. Maybe I could just blend in and just live on with, you know, my wife and my baby or or break away and maybe just live as a guy. And maybe mm -hmm. that was what the whole thing was. But the thought of a homosexual relationship just really destroyed me. I couldn't handle it. There was nothing mm -hmm. there. And I couldn't be a guy anymore. I was just totally distressed about the possibility of being a male, of having male genitalia any longer. As a matter of fact, I had feelings of self-mutilation, self-destruction in a lot of different areas because I wanted to just destroy who I was and mm -hmm. who I was outwardly was Danny at the time, my yeah. male counterpart. Well, what happened was these people told me about a doctor, about a gay doctor, who was prescribing hormones to those who claimed to be transsexuals. I went there and in an hour visit, I got the hormones. Well, the same doctor later on turned out to be a horrible doctor because he prescribed hormones to people who shouldn't have had it. He did no evaluation at all? No, he Nothing? just opened it up. Just... I mean, at the time, and even now, I thank God that he happened to have been there, you know, because if he wouldn't have, there's no telling what I would have done, but I got on the hormones, and it seemed to straighten me out. Well, then, did he refer you on to any institution, a university, or the surgery? What about the surgery? Did you try contacting people at universities in which they were doing this type of research? Well, of course, the first step a transsexual always wants to undergo in terms of the change process is the surgery. Mm -hmm. And I tried in every way I could. I had no money. So I tried to earn any kind of money I could to get an operation. Of course, it was a very desperate situation because suddenly I was dressing as a female. And I should also mention this, that my singing career was brought to a halt because all the producers, everyone that was around me said, you'll never sing again, you'll never have a chance. They knew about this at this point. Right, I told them, so they huh? didn't want to be around me. They didn't? So 
I had no way of making money. And at this time, you were dressing as a female, uh -huh, uh -huh. and you had, had, you had the hormones, so you are beginning to see changes in your body because of the hormones. So really, you were sort of in between and in between. Mm -hmm. And when I stepped off the curb in Sunset Strip, that was the day I decided I was going to live full-time as a female and started dressing as a female. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, I had to make myself sing as a female. Oh. And that was not easy, not at all. For what happened was I had to learn to sing as a female on my own. No one taught me. And my voice changed quite drastically from a lower register to a higher register. You just worked at it. Yeah, because right? yeah, mm -hmm. my voice is more normal in a higher register. Well, Canary, it's been a long, difficult path for you. And I guess you've experienced just about every problem conceivable. So what would you suggest to another person faced with the same gender identity problem? How would you guide them, besides the obvious, of course, necessity of seeking competent medical help and rigid psychiatric and psychological evaluation? Well, probably the best advice that I could ever give a person who was even mildly considering a major step like this would be to first examine their priorities, examine their success factor as whatever sex they are living under. For example, if a male is, in fact, a very successful male who is a professional at whatever profession and is succeeding, has a wife or children, has tremendous peer respect, is he willing to forego all that to live as a female and start over again. It's one thing to fantasize having an operation and going through and becoming a beautiful woman. It's a, another thing, and a tremendous step for someone to do it, to pull it off. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, and I'll give you a good example, I know of someone who was a brilliant scientist, and very successful financially, who decided one day at 49 years old that he was a woman now, this is after four children and three wives. It's my opinion that um, if it takes someone 49 years to find out that they're a female, then there is certainly a factor of doubt that should be taken into consideration on the part of any doctor who's going to authorize a surgery, you know. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, this person went on to get the surgery and continued working as a male after the surgery. As a result, today has ruined his life because he lives part of the time as a woman, part of the time as a man, has lost all peer respect, cannot handle a job. So I think probably the top priority is for them to really sit down and think about what the change is going to do for them. Are they going to end their life as they live it? Are they willing to stop their job? Very few transsexuals can continue their jobs. Very few. Something like a drastic change in their lifestyle. Oh, sure. Well, sure. I've, I've known corporate executives who suddenly had to sell their car and leave their home and their wife and their friends and family and their past and start over as a counter girl at a dry cleaner's or a restaurant waitress. And prognosis for the future, unfortunately, very gloomy, yeah. you know, very dismal, because what kind of profit can a waitress make, especially a waitress who suddenly has gone through the change and still looks like a male? Yeah, there are a lot of decisions to make. That's right. A lot more decisions than most people realize. Canary, thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and getting to know you, and I hope we meet again. Well, thank you very much, and I'm sure we will. Good luck. <laughs>
Thank you. This concludes the interview with Miss Canary Khan. You have heard one of a series of Psychology Today cassettes. Sexing History is written and produced by Lauren Gutterman and me, Gillian Frank. Our senior producer is Sunia Lee Ganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producers are Chris Babbitts, Isabel Macado, and Mallory Szymanski. Our intern is Julian Harbaugh. Thank you to Psychology Today for permission to republish this interview with Canary Khan. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the Foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We are grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences program for undergraduate summer research. Sexing History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. Sexing History is also supported by a grant from the Program in American Studies and the Americas Center, Centro de las Americas, at University of Virginia. The Americas Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. If you're enjoying our show, please help new listeners find us. Review us on Apple Music and share us on social media. To stay up to date on all things sexing history, or to send us a note, visit us at our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening. I, 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 I,